WBNE. Hello from elsewhere. I'm Valerie. And I'm Casey. And welcome to the podcast where we explore pop culture. This episode comes to you straight from the library basement where Ray Bradbury wrote Fahrenheit 451. Because today we're discussing the power of stories. You know, it's a powerful story. I'm scared what you're going to say. <laughs> Bluey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Bluey is a Disney Junior show that's on Disney Plus, And it's about a family of dogs, like cartoon dogs, that act like a real family. The, and it's Australian. And it's legitimately good. Like So good. Even as an adult, it's legitimately good. The kids are like, can we watch Bluey? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't dread it. Just going to put that out there. Bluey is great storytelling. Valerie, I learned some amazing trivia today. I don't know if people will get sick of my just random trivia sometimes at the top of these episodes, but do you, do you want to hear it? I, I want to hear it. It is Star Wars related. So as, Shocker. as, as came <laughs> out, so I've been listening to a podcast called Soundworks lately, which I love. It's all about um, sound design and sound editing and mixing in film and television, um, which is something that I really, really love learning about. Um, even though I know nothing about it, like it's a you know more than a lot of people about it. I don't know the technical stuff. And sometimes the podcast gets a little bit technical, but it, it's pretty accessible and um, I highly recommend it. But anyways, I was listening to a recent episode where they're talking about um, the sound design of of um, of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker with Matthew Wood and uh, Dave, oh, I can't remember his last name, but two of the sound guys that worked on The Rise of Skywalker and Matthew Wood. Well, and David, they've both been there with at Skywalker Sound for a long time, but especially Matthew Wood. He's sort of Ben Burt's protege. Um, but they were talking about various things in the sound of The Rise of Skywalker. And they were talking about how, you know, Shirley Henderson is the voice of Babu Frick. And yes. Shirley Henderson is... Um, Moaning Myrtle. Moaning Myrtle. But what came out like even cooler trivia, because that's already really cool trivia as it is. But yes. even better than that was she was the puppeteer... Really? Yeah. She was on <laughs> set. So um, they liked her voice. I guess they must have done auditions beforehand or something and they liked mm -hmm. her voice, but then they actually brought her on set and had her, like taught her how to be the puppeteer for Babu Frick to really get the timing down from, you know, with the voice, the movements of the puppet's mouth with her voice, which I just, that makes me so it's happy fantastic. that she, she was the puppeteer. So now she has something new to put on her resume. <laughs> right. Voice acting, regular acting. Puppeteer. Puppeteer, yeah. Casey, I have a all-important question for you. I'm ready. My my body and mind are ready. With your powers combined, that's oh, that's, that's your answer to this question. No, <laughs> it is 100. percent What fictional character are you most like, and what fictional character do you wish you were more like? The fictional character I'm most like won't surprise you or many listeners, but it is. Do you know what I'm going to say? I do, but I also have one I want you to say. Okay, <laughs> this question's already getting really convoluted, but which? what do you think I'm going to say, and what do you want me to say? And then I will give what I want to say. <laughs> you are going to say Chidi Anagonye, mm -hmm. and I want you to say Wally. Wally the robot? Yep, Wally the robot. Why? Because he's fantastic, but I'm not you're fantastic. But I'm not like Wally the robot. He's not just because I am human, but... <laughs> I just don't think I'm like him personality-wise. Why do you want me to s say Wally? He's just so cute. All right. Why wouldn't you want to be Wally? You know who else <laughs> is cute? Maybe that's the one you want to be more like. You know who else is cute? Chidi Anagonye. That guy in the in the calendar that we own? <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Hangs over your side of the bed. <laughs> it's, it's, I see it when I go to sleep and I see it when I wake up. Chidi's face. Um, yeah, Chidi Anagonye. Because you look at that side of the wall instead of my side of the bed. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you agree that I am m- very much like Chidi? Anagonye? Oh, yes. Every time he has to make a decision and gets a stomach ache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that line, I'm in a perfect utopia and I have a stomach ache, is, seems to be how I live my life. Like yep. I have a pretty good life, but my anxiety makes it tricky sometimes. And mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I tend to overthink things. I'm a bit pedantic, and yeah, I have a lot of qualities similar to Chidi. But when, again, he is a lot smarter than I am. But when you teach, do you always write your name <laughs> on the top of the whiteboard, even though you only have three students and they <laughs> all already know your name? No, I don't. Okay, <laughs> but I should. I should start doing that when you I'm counseling should. with students. Yep. <laughs> and in case you forgot. I'm Mr. Winters. <laughs> <laughs> and then the character that I wish I was most like is Elwood P. Dowd from Harvey. Mm, I thought you were going to say Elwood. Elwoods? <laughs> I thought you were just going to stop. Woods. Yes, Elwoods. I thought you were going to stop at Elwoods. I do wish I was like Elwoods. <laughs> she is a force. She is. A force to be reckoned with. And uh, But no, I was going to say Elwood P. Dowd from Harvey, which is a fantastic play and then a movie. Um, he just, I don't know, impacts the characters around him in such a positive way. And he's very, such an affable, happy, friendly person. And uh, I'm just kind of awkward around people. And so those types of characters that just seem to have it come easy. I don't know. I really appreciate that. Plus the line that he says of, you know, for years I was smart, but I recommend being kind. I just like that. That for me as someone that often focuses on trying to be smart, it doesn't matter as much as being kind and He's just a great character, and I love him. He is a great character. Now, what are your... He's a great character to want to be. What are your answers? I feel that I am most like Eleanor Dashwood of Sense and Sensibility. She Mm. and I are similarly reserved and focusing on the things that need to be done and not always the most fun character. Maybe that's not a... You're not very sentimental. (laughs) I'm not very sentimental. Um, Uh Not overly romantic, necessarily. Um very even keeled like things don't seem to get me too excited or to depress me too much like yeah. i can just right go along make the best of what happens so i feel like i'm a lot like her in those ways and i wish i was more like molly weasley i think you're like molly weasley i am in some ways but she's more forceful than i am and i feel like i feel like i'm be- slowly I, as i become mm. more confident as an adult and a parent and everything just i am a little more forceful than i used to be so maybe i can continue to become more you're like you're slowly molly morphing weasley. into molly yes, weasley exactly and i'm slowly morphing into orville redenbacher <laughs> well today we are talking about the power of stories which is easily the most broad topic we've ever covered it's um, huge. Where do you even start? Yeah, and we definitely will not do it justice, just up front. Nope. This is not a definitive answer on what is the power of stories, but it is kind of our feelings on it and our answer, the answer of the answer from elsewhere. We, re- we researched a lot for this episode, and we will, we're going to post the notes on the Patreon page, but it, you don't have to be a patron. Um, you can just go to patreon.com slash hello from elsewhere and you can see the notes for this episode and the, the citations, the, the, bi- the bibliography, if you will. Um, but I'm going to start with a little bit of a quote from Lee Child, who is author of a Jack Reacher, the Jack Reacher novels, which I've never read. I know nothing about Lee Child. I just really liked um, he had an article in The New Yorker called Telling Tales in 2016. I think this is a good place for us to start. He begins the article talking about the history of of stories and how, you know, we didn't have language and then we got language and 
our language is probably focused around non-fictional things like there's a, there's a bear over there. Be careful, you know, or let's go hunting. Or I went hunting today and it was terrible and I almost got eaten by said bear. Then he says, at some point, though, we invented a parallel option. We invented fiction. We started talking about things that hadn't happened to people who didn't exist. Why? Not for entertainment during our leisure time. We were still deep in prehistory. We had no leisure time. Everything was a desperate struggle for survival. We did nothing unless it had a chance of keeping us alive until morning. Fiction evolved for a purpose. Warnings and cautionary tales could be sourced from the grim non-fiction world. A saber-toothed tiger will kill you. Okay, got it. Fiction pushed the pendulum the other way. It inspired and empowered and emboldened. It said, no, actually, there was a guy, a friend of a friend, who came face to face with a saber-toothed tiger, a huge one, and he turned and outran it all the way back to the cave, safe as can be. So don't panic. It doesn't always turn out bad. Then perhaps a hundred generations later, the story evolved, and the friend of the friend killed the tiger. The action hero was born. Strength and courage would save us, and it worked. Fiction in its various forms proved just as powerful to our survival as any other factor. Some would say more powerful. Some would name, some would name us not Homo sapiens, but Pan Narans, the storytelling ape. I like that. Pan Narans. Yeah. <laughs> it's just fun to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. Um, but I like this distinction between nonfiction and fiction. And also, we think of fiction as being there to entertain. But I like this idea that it's meant to inspire and embolden um, and give us hope. I agree. And it makes sense since we started with storytelling in the forms of, you know, uh, cave drawings and very simple stories. And the fact that stories get passed, like he says in, in the quote, through generation and generation, uh, as it passes through 100 years, they, they shift and change into, into what we currently need the stories to be versus what those of the past needed their stories to be. Yeah, it's really like kind of going off of that. It's really crazy to think about... Um, the evolution of the media that we use to tell stories you know the, like you said the first medium being um cave drawings and, and oral storytelling and that we had that for a very very long time um eventually we got to the point of written stories and then um but then other things popped up you know plays we, and theater plays and theaters and then we told email stories and chat room stories yeah. and now we tell instagram stories like video stories mm. people tell video stories all the time yeah. now you got Whether film. it's in TikToks or anything right. else, like there is a, a huge, our history, our modern day, you know, when people look back on us, they'll be like, wow, look at all these videos that people took <laughs> right. that we have that tell their stories. Right. We are, like he says, we're storytelling apes. That's what we do as humans. And, um, and then, of course, we have movies and books, which is often the focus of, of our podcast, um, maybe our favorite ways of telling stories, but they aren't, definitely aren't the only way. And I guess before we said plays but plays probably came bef would have come before because that's sort of a form of oral storytelling but um makes sense the point remains that it, it stories have, have evolved through generations and generations in different ways but we still tell stories and it's kind of what makes us human i think that's definitely true it, the ability to tell stories is what sets us apart from all the other species on earth we're the only ones with the the capacity to tell a story yeah um th this leads me to so as I was researching this, I came across this author named Jonathan Gottschall, I think you pronounce it. I'm not entirely sure. But he talks about this, how we're storytelling is what sets us apart and what's, what makes us human. And it's funny because this author kept cropping up as, as I was looking into stuff and I didn't even realize it. So like um, the first thing I came across was a TED talk, a TEDx talk that he did, which, which is really good. Um, but then I found another article and I was reading it, but I hadn't looked at who the author was. I was just reading it. 
And I was like, oh, this sounds kind of like the video. And then I realized, oh, it's the same, the same guy. And then I found another interview. So he's kind of all over the internet, but what he says is all really powerful. And he gives a really good example about how we as humans think in terms of stories and that it's just a natural thing. He shows this old like psychology, sociology experiment on on the, in the TED Talk. And it's just a video, like this very crude drawings. It's just a box and then um, some triangles and circles. But the triangles and circles are moving around and like bumping into each other and moving around this box and going inside it and outside of it. And the original experimenters had asked like hundreds of people what they thought about this. And it was, I think it was like 150 people they asked. And only two people said, it's just circles and triangles moving around on a screen. Everyone else had like made a story of, of what this was. Like they'd all, they all saw it as a story, even though it wasn't, it was just drawings moving around a screen, but that's sort of, we contextualize everything through story, which I think is really cool. Yeah. I like that. I also like this quote he had in the talk. He said, um, we are trying to impose the order of story structure on the chaos of existence. Just this idea that life is pretty chaotic and it's not always just, and there's not always happy endings and that stories kind of can provide that, that order for us. And I think that's why we like story structure and this, you know, the three act structure of a story we like because it gives us order, but it is a human invention. That's fun because today we were talking about stories uh, with our oldest, with my oldest, and we are talking about the structure of a story. So we started talking about settings and plots and, and the three act. And we didn't, I didn't call it the three act, but we were just talking about like how stories always have a beginning, a middle and an end and how we structure stories and, and some of the things that generally happen in the first part in the beginning, like how you set the scene, how you decide a location and who your characters will be and how you're going to introduce them and those kinds of things. And, and he loved it. He writes stories all the time, but for him to be able to see a structure and to kind of know where to put each part was something that he really enjoyed being able to create that pattern and, and write a story within those uh, parameters. It's so interesting how far back that structure goes too. Yes. You know, that we... Again, the medium has changed, but we still crave that structure in our stories. We still crave the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we often crave um, a happy ending or a meaningful ending in some way. Um, I just love that, that that hasn't changed, that that's somehow ingrained in us as humans. You know? And we get upset when they're not ordered that way or they, right. they when a story feels chaotic, you're like, I just, I just don't like it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's hard to understand because, like he says in the quote, life is chaotic, but we don't want our stories to be that way. We want them to have a, a rhythm to them that's understandable. Well, and, and speaking of like the chaos of life, he talked about how even in times of great sorrow and tragedy, even like on a large scale, we still crave stories to help us through that. And it made me think Absolutely. about how like the movie Life is Beautiful, um, where the they're in the concentration camp and he's... Um, using stories to sort of help his son through that tragedy. And it's really, I mean, it's really harrowing, but it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, powerful. it's powerful. Yeah. And I think that, that, that movie is a really good example of, um, of the power of story and its ability to lift us and embolden us and guide us through, through those sorrows. And now that we've gone really sad and somber. <laughs> You're going to bring us back to... <laughs> it also, it's also nice to note that stories are meant to enliven our lives and to give us something to look forward to outside of our troubles and sorrows. So that's really nice too. Sometimes we look at certain literature and books as 
escapism. And I think sometimes escapism gets a, a bad name in that, oh, you're just doing that to avoid anything of importance is kind of the idea of it. But I think there's value in entertainment through stories. And even some of the silliest stories can have value. I mean, I'm not saying all stories have value, but I found this quote by Pauline Kael, who was a movie critic, one of the most- She was one of the biggest, One yeah. of the biggest, mm-hmm. one of the fam- most famous. And I love that too. It's rare for a, a woman to be one of the foremost in her area anytime, but especially in like the 1950s and 60s yeah. when she became really popular. Right. Yeah, when I think of movie critics, I think of Roger Ebert, and Pauline Kael. Like those, those are, are the, the two. The two. The two, yeah. But Pauline Kael said that movies are so rarely great art that if we cannot appreciate great trash, we have very little reason to be interested in them. That's fantastic because I found a Pauline Kael quote as well, independent of you. Yeah. <laughs> that has a very similar theme. We always research separately. So Not always, but... I, a lot of the time. Yeah. So then it's interesting to come back together and, <laughs> and see how our research works together. But yeah, I love her quote. I just love the idea that not everything that we read or watch is going to be amazing. So we should, have, you know, it's not going to be considered great art. So we should appreciate for what it is, great trash, or just in the idea that it can be enjoyable and fun and you can just like it. You don't have, it doesn't have to have great purpose and meaning always to yeah. be a powerful story. Yeah, I'm a, a very firm believer that the emotion of of experiencing a story is far more important on whether it's quote unquote good or bad. If you have an emotional reaction, I think that's enough. Um, and not that, again, not that you can't dislike something, but I think that just the emotional experience is, is vital and important. And I don't think that we, meaning society, talk about that enough, about how important that emotional reaction is to experiencing a story, because that is its purpose, is to the purpose is to elicit an emotional reaction. Well, I think that's how we learn from something and how we remember what we learned from a story is because we remember how it made us feel. Mm -hmm. Like it made me feel sad or or whatever it is. And that's how we remember what we learned. That's why fiction is so powerful. So back to Jonathan Gottschall, there's another quote that he had that you just made me think of. He says, Fiction seems to be more effective at changing beliefs than nonfiction, which is designed to persuade through argument and evidence. Studies show that when we read nonfiction, we read with our shields up. We are critical and skeptical. When we are absorbed in a story, we drop our intellectual guard. We are moved emotionally, and this seems to make us rubbery and easy to shape. I like that, that stories make us rubbery. (laughs) But it's so true. We learn, and we learn to be flexible from them. I have something that goes right off that, Casey. Okay. There's an article in a journal, and it's talking about how uh, the article is called How Does Fiction Reading Influence Empathy? And they, through research, found that a reader will be affected by a fictional narrative only when a narrative world has been created that feels real to the reader and is allowing them to be like pulled into the story. Whereas their research showed that the opposite is true, like a, that a nonfiction writing does not create those same feelings of engagement and therefore will not change the reader through the narrative. But the idea is that fiction elicits emotions, making it more effective at teaching people versus a straightforward, you should do this, you should do that. Like, you know, being told things step by step is never going to be as effective as a story that makes you feel a certain way. Can I get back to the Pauline Kael yes. quote that I was Go going back. to say before? It's long, so I'm, I'm going to shorten it a little bit, but 
Uh, she says, the movie doesn't have to be great. It can be stupid and empty, and you can still have the joy of a good performance or the joy in just a good line. An actor's scowl, a small subversive gesture, a dirty remark that someone tosses off with a mock innocent face, and the world makes a little bit of sense. And then she goes on to say, the romance of movies is not just in those stories and those people on the screen, but in the adolescent dream of meeting others who feel as you do about what you've seen. I, I think it's so important that, like she brings in this subtlety that you can dislike a lot about a movie, but you can also like aspects of it. And I think that we, again, we as a society, um, what's the word? Sometimes I, I feel like we get rigid as a society. <laughs> the only things, only certain things are of value. But I like that she points out that even little moments can be of value. Yeah. Well, and, and that there's the nuance of it that, you know, the internet breeds this sense of this thing is good or bad, or this thing is trash or this thing is the greatest thing of all time. Like there's no middle ground. Whereas yes. we can have more nuance than that. We can say, I really like this little part. This part really was really powerful. And just focus in on that. And I think that's okay. I want to get back to the article you mentioned. Um, because there's been all kinds of science around this. Like neuroscience about the power of story and how it affects us as we read. Yes. Like there's a, been a there was a study done in the UK with students from Italy and the UK, and they showed that reading Harry Potter improves attitudes toward stigmatized groups like immigrants, homosexuals, refugees, and just the idea that the way we receive the way we receive fiction and how it can influence us in, in positive or negative ways, but I do feel like fiction tends to influence us in positive ways. Uh, like in this case with Harry Potter showing that certain groups were being picked on in Harry Potter and then you see that that's not okay and Harry Potter and Hermione are like, no, we shouldn't pick on the muggles and we shouldn't look down upon the house elves. And so all of these moments are teaching the students who are reading them that, hey, if we shouldn't pick on those uh, I don't know what you call those classes of people, then we in our real lives shouldn't be looking down on or picking on people that we don't see as often or that we're not accustomed to just because we don't know as much about them. That's so funny because that that um, journal article was part of my thesis research. I wondered when I was doing that, I thought, if this isn't in Casey's thesis, I don't know if it, it should be. I don't know if it ended <laughs> up in the actual text, but it was definitely mm. something that I was, was in there at some point and had come across. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if it fit or not, but... Um, that actually brings me to something else I wanted to bring up, also related to Harry Potter, because we can talk about it's related to this in just the idea that stories breed empathy and there's actual science behind this and how, you know, when we experience a story, we are like they've done studies of the brain. We are experiencing a story as if we're there, not as an audience. So I love the idea that there are no audiences, that if we're experiencing a story we're actually experiencing the story but there's this article um right it's like that first journal article that i quoted where it's saying that readers are affected by a fictional world when they f when the world feels real to them so like when you get pulled into the story then you are affected by it as if it's the real world yeah so there's some some scientists uh sue conrad and jacobs so they're studying the effect of of reading empathy inducing passages from Harry Potter um, on readers, and they found that the the parts of the brain that dealt with empathy and pain were, were firing when those characters were experiencing it. So um, I love that. Just it's just amazing. And and to take that further to this and, and also there's been research done about like the hormones that are released 
um, as you're reading. Oh, I can definitely think of moments in books or movies where adrenaline yeah, is like exactly. pumping. You're like, oh, they're going to get caught. Yeah. So there is um, another video from David J.P. Phillips. He talks about um, the science of storytelling. And in it, he's talking about how like, yeah, that dopamine is released and giving you like focus and memory and motivation when there's suspense or a cliffhanger. Um, really all storytelling when you're waiting for the next thing to come is releasing dopamine. Um, but then there's also the empathy of, of oxytocin, which is like generosity and trust and bonding. And then of course there's endorphins that come from like the humor in stories. So you're feeling positive or relaxed. Um, I mean, it's, it seems like a simple thing, but think about how almost odd it is that if you're experiencing a story and there's something funny and you laugh, the story doesn't know you're laughing. So why do we laugh? <laughs> because, because it's releasing those, my brain. because it's giving us those those good feeling hormones. Like because we are experiencing it as if we're in the story. As if we're in the story. You know? Yeah. I wanted to talk about kind of on a similar train back to what you had mentioned about um, how the readers of Harry Potter had um, sort of changed their feelings or felt more strongly in a positive way toward people of groups that were different from them. And I think that that's a really powerful thought about how stories one of their purposes is to allow us to enter the lives of people who aren't like us. You know, that's the fun of reading or watching a movie is I'm not this person, but I get to experience life kind of as if I were this person. Yes, which not only makes us see things differently, but when we imagine ourselves, we get to imagine a world beyond ourselves. Right. I think there's there's a definite benefit to viewing things or reading things about people that are like you. Um, especially when we talk about representation in media. Like, I think it's really, really important that people of social minorities get to see people on screen or read books about people that are like them, especially because um, there hasn't been enough of that. And we're getting more, but I, I really have a strong belief in representation. And at the same time, I think it's really good for people of social majority to experience those, to see people on screen that aren't necessarily like them in some way. I think both are equally powerful and I think that's really cool. And I'm glad that that movies and books are at least slowly heading that way. Absolutely. And even in any form of storytelling or any community, it's great to like broaden your horizon. Like I remember a, I don't remember, I don't remember who, but I sew a lot. And so my Instagram account is mostly sewing related and I am very into the the sewing community on Instagram and there was a push for following I don't remember who started but somebody was saying that you know you should just go follow 10 new accounts of people who aren't like you yeah just that idea that you experience the world through their stories and see how they see things and I think that's what fiction and uh, that's what fiction can do for us, that we can broaden our minds. That's the whole point. you know. Yeah. None of us have the opportunity, or few of us, I should say, have the opportunity to travel the entire world and live with different cultures for periods of time and really learn about them. But we all have the opportunity to read about those people or to watch movies about them or to follow their accounts on or social media. Hopefully or, we have that opportunity. Like we do because we're in a place of privilege. But I, just I guess mean, that's like, true. Some people don't have that opportunity, but right. we want them to. You know? We want them to. Yeah. And if you have that opportunity, you should take yeah. advantage of it and not just fill your fiction and, and social media needs with, or with people who are similar to you. Right. You just don't learn as much. And I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that we should all get more comfortable with being a little uncomfortable yes. um, with the media we consume. I think that's good and that's how we 
like you said, that's how we grow. And stories can be escapist and entertaining, and they can also be things that stretch us and and it might be a little bit uncomfortable and that's okay. That's good. Like for an example, I'm thinking of the movie Crazy Rich Asians. Yes. I love that movie so much. It's so good. And I love that it's an entirely Asian cast, mm-hmm. which is so different from what we normally see. So where that, we live. In, for where or we do you live. just mean in, in movies Oh, and in just general, in movies yeah. in general. Well, and yeah, even where... Both. <laughs> and both. Uh, but it's... So fun to see that representation and to just view a different culture and a, yeah, and a different way of life, experience it yeah. differently. Um, I love that movie so much. And yeah, a, a large part of it is just because it's uh, it's fun and it's exciting and it, there's those good endorphins. And that's but a it, movie that you it, could see as just entertaining. Yeah. You're like, this movie's really funny. This is great. But then you think about the implications of the culture that they're in right. and... And it goes deeper than you originally uh, view it as. Yeah, I love this idea that we're shaped by the stories that we experience. Um, definitely in adulthood. 100%. But especially as children. Especially as children. Um, so much of... It, it's to the point where it's hard to even see it, you know? Like, I'm sure there's so many stories that have shaped me that I don't realize. You're blind to what's right in front of your face kind of a thing. Um, Plus you were a kid and you just don't remember much of it. That's true, too. Yeah. I was just thinking about just one of the, mo- the most powerful ideas for me in, in all of fiction comes from Fahrenheit 451, where at the end of the, you know, spoiler alert, but at the end of the, the book, the characters are almost literally becoming books. They've memorized the books and they recite them and it becomes part of who they are as, as an act of, of rebellion. But it's definitely a, a metaphor for how we are shaped by stories, and I love that. I love it. I love that it's a return to our past heritage as oral storytellers. Mm, that's true. And that that can be that that the the idea that telling a story can be an act of rebellion is one of my favorite things yeah, of all time, for sure. Um, and then it, I came across this other quote. It had nothing to do with Fahrenheit 451, but I just liked it. Um, and then we'll we'll move to the next part of the of the episode. But it comes from an author named. Tahara Mafi, I hope I said that right. I might not have. I apologize. They said, I spent my life folded between the pages of books. In the absence of human relationships, I formed bond I formed bonds with paper characters. I lived love and loss through stories threaded in history. I experienced adolescence by association. My world is one interwoven web of words, stringing limb to limb, bone to sinew, thoughts and images all together. I am a being comprised of letters, a character created by sentences, a figment of imagination formed through fiction. And it's just like a, a super poetic way of, of expressing this, of we are stories. All right, Val, you wanted to, or something on your brain. No, I'm just still thinking about that quote. It's okay. just stuck there. It's just so pretty. <laughs> I know. <right? laughs> you wanted to talk about the current state of stories. We, we've touched on it here and there a little bit, but. Yes, we were talking about the podcast and what we wanted to bring up one of the things that I kept thinking about was how stories have changed and what sells like what stories sell to audiences today and using that as a parameter of what people actually really like in their stories I just think it's interesting to see where we stand on that today so I was looking up lists of what are the most popular movie genres in North America and then what the top selling books are in North America. Mm. And that alone is really interesting because they're kind of opposites. Oh, really? Like top-selling books are romance, whereas in movies, rom-coms are 
like way down the list are seventh on the list. They like romantic comedies make 9.9 billion US dollars in movies. Is that between an, uh, like certain amount of years or per year? That was so okay. So that was from uh, yes, that is from 1995 to 2019. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So this is this graph is from 1995 to 2019, and that's the amount of money that has been earned by those movies in that amount of time. So the most popular movie genre in North America is adventure movies, which then the next category is action, and I'm not sure how they distinguish between the two. Right. Because a lot of times I feel like action adventure is put together right so they do have them differentiated on the graph but either way those are number one and two which sounds about right and then you've got drama and then comedy and then thriller suspense then horror then romantic comedy musicals come in at only four billion dollars over the last what is that 25 years yeah (laughs) And then you have documentaries and black comedy, meaning like dark humor, and then westerns, and then concert slash performances. You know those ones that they advertise every so often? Like, like the opera ones? Yeah, see stuff. the opera in theaters. <laughs> and in movie theaters, not in opera right, right. theaters. Yes. <laughs> but we were talking about this before we started recording. It's interesting to think about whether, like, for example, westerns are really low on the list. Are they low on the list because we as audiences don't want them and therefore nobody's making them? Or is nobody making them and therefore we don't know whether we want them or not? Right. Like if they're not available to us, how do we know whether we, whether we like Westerns or I not? I feel like there was a hot minute where there were a few and then they just yes. kind of went away though. Because it was like That's true. we had the remake of... Uh, mean Cowboys and Aliens? Yes, there was Cowboys and Aliens. <laughs> I think it's Cowboys versus Aliens. Oh, is it? I don't remember. Um, it might be and. I actually don't remember. And then I there was and. Um, the remake of True Grit, which I'll is really good. Um, there was The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which is a great title. Um, I, I feel like there was a little gap, a little um, a few years there where we had a few Westerns. And then, I don't know, I, I think they're still making them. It's just not, they're not superhero movies. Where's my dollar? I didn't bet you a dollar. I said, I'll bet you a dollar. That it was Cowboys and Aliens. That was Cowboys and Aliens. Not you were right. versus Aliens. Cowboys ampersand that's a, Aliens. That's a movie, that one. That is a thing that happened <laughs> in our collective fever dream. It was a real dream. thing. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's interesting to realize that books sell very different genres than movies do. So what does that say, Casey? Does that say that readers experience their fiction differently than moviegoers? Or just that when we go to a movie, we're looking for a different experience than in than when we're looking in a book? I think that, I mean, it's important to note the difference between movies and books in that books allow us to get into the head of a character in a way that is a lot harder for movies to do. Um, so, so you look at like romance that totally makes sense because that's such an important genre to know what the main characters are thinking. Yes. Um, like we were talking about this before. And you want to experience it from their perspective. That's the whole fun of the story. Right. Like we were talking about this with the To All the Boys sequel. How I felt the ending, the ending felt a little bit rushed or it was hard to know the characters' motivations. And that's because in book form, you get a little bit more in their heads. So you get maybe all that's their part thoughts and feelings. Yeah. So that could be a big part of it, especially since the second book genre that makes the most money is crime slash mystery. Mm. So like the idea of being in either the detective's head and trying to solve it along with them step by step, but yeah. you see their mind processing the information and you get to 
process it at the same speed and way that they do. Right. Um, or even the opposite, like thriller and like all the crime books, like some of those are from the perspective of the criminal or from the, uh, so that'd be an interesting, different way of experiencing it. I also wonder if part, and this is just complete conjecture, but I wonder if part of it is whatever is most accessible. Um, you know, like romances and thrillers are pretty quick reads. Um, they're pretty escapist and like definitely focused on entertainment usually. Yeah, and, beach reads. And, and Yes. And same with movies, <laughs> adventure and action. Those are quote unquote the most shallow or um, they're just the most accessible. And I bet that's part of the reason why. But I don't know. No, I can definitely see that. I mean, self-help, self-help books didn't even make the top five genre. Mm. So obviously when we reach for something, we tend to reach for entertaining, like inter- those things of entertainment value yeah. versus those things that will better us. Right. <laughs> Which is interesting because we talked about how fiction can better yeah. us. Well, I don't think that, yeah, I don't think it's wrong. It's just that I think it's important to make sure that you and that me, that I, like for me, the- I want to have a, a smattering that... It's okay to have dessert, but we should have dinner sometimes too. The neither is wrong or bad. I, I guess dessert can be bad, but it can be bad when you have it in, you know. Mass quantities. Yes. Mass quantities. Yes. I fall victim to this all the time. I read the next book that seems exciting or fun or that I know I can blow through yeah. quickly. I mean, last year I read over 50 books and there are two parenting books that Casey set on my <laughs> my side my nightstand those are so good like a year ago and I'm like yeah I'm totally gonna read those parenting books but I have since read 50 books between the time that you handed those to me and they're still sitting on my nightstand like a year later you should just try one of them I know I really should I should eat my des- my dinner <laughs> I'm not like a big reader of parenting books it was like books that we had to read for, you know, school psychology classes that also happen to be aimed toward parenting. And uh, they're just really good. But you should at right. least read one of them. No, and I I, I still intend to. <laughs> the, but that's how I view my fiction is that I parent all day. I don't want to read about parenting. I want a break from it. I want to read this other book that's a completely different life right. from the one that I lead. But the purpose of that is to make the parenting easier so you won't be as tired. <laughs> so I'll have so more time to read. So after you finish it, you would have more time to read because you'll be an even cooler parent. So I don't think catch can, 22. I don't think you can guarantee that. That you'll that, be a cooler parent? That reading that book will give me more time to read. <laughs> other books that I want to read more. <laughs> no, it's probably n- probably not. No. <laughs> but all I'm saying is it will make you, if you could less stressed that, as a parent. What are you talking about? I don't stress. <laughs> That's true. I do. You stress about the children way more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> There's one more idea I wanted to talk about in talking about the state of stories today. And the question that Kate was coming to my mind is how do we as an audience and even those as those who are critics as well, like how do we affect the stories that are being produced? For example, the Star Wars franchise is a huge one. Yeah. There are so many thoughts on what from the fans on what should and shouldn't be done to movies. And even though the studios go a certain direction, I think they still definitely feel the pressure yeah. of those things. Like we watched the behind the scenes making of The Last Jedi the other night. Yeah, there's a documentary, The Director and the Jedi. Highly, highly recommend it. It's so good. It's really good. And the director, Ryan Johnson, mentions several times throughout the documentary that he just feels the pressure 
He's like, you know, I'll be going along, everything's good, and then all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, this is a Star Wars movie. Right. Like, there's just so much pressure put behind a Star Wars movie by the, you know, the idea that it's just this giant franchise and all the fans, and he had the added hardship of of Mark Hamill not liking what was going with right. the ending to Luke's character, uh, and Mark Hamill did a great job about being very professional about it and still putting forth Ryan Johnson's vision. But as somebody who would have grown up watching Mark Hamill play Luke, like he is Luke and he's like, oh man, I, or at least I'd be like, Mark Hamill doesn't like what I did to his character. I've got to right. change it. Yeah. So the idea that we influence the, not only the movies too, but like the, the fiction that we read, I think you see that in Game of Thrones. Is that the name of it? Yes. George George R.R. Martin's books. What about it? Yeah. Just the idea that I haven't read any of them, but you hear the theory that at some point he started writing for the show versus writing the books Mm -hmm. for themselves. He was focusing on a different audience, which isn't necessarily bad, although some fans might say so. It just is the idea that the audience starts to influence the creator. So. so in other words, stories shape us and we shape stories and it's a symbiotic relationship. And it's a zeitgeist. And Disney is the highest grossing film studio, which means that they control like a large portion of the stories being told to large overreaching audiences. So basically Disney controls us and that's the final note. But do we shape Not Disney but as do we much shape as they Disney. shape us? Yeah. <laughs> that's the question. I don't know. In some ways I think we do. Like you look at the Rise of Skywalker again and how much I, I like that movie for the record. I need to say that again. I do like that movie. But it seems but I, to backpedal on yeah, things I that, didn't like that The Last Jedi aspect did. of it. Um, yep. That it felt reactionary rather than um, forward thinking. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's dangerous if if the collective is given too much power. I think that you know, not only to creators but just um, us as consumers if like I'm I'm a big believer that you should watch something and not listen to people about it for a while that you should sit with your own thoughts and feelings on it solidify how you feel about it before you jump on the internet and find out what joe schmo thinks about the latest star wars and why it's the the worst thing ever made you know and or um and, and that's different than just talking about it with your friends that's not what i mean i just mean um this collective of strangers and I think we give too much power to that and not power to our own emotions of what you just experienced. Because as we talked about, fiction stories are supposed to elicit emotional responses. Yeah. And if it didn't elicit that in someone else, that's fine. But um, we should sit with our own emotions with it for a little while so that it's solid. Yeah, because just because it didn't have value to somebody else doesn't mean that that same story wouldn't have value to you. Right. That is perfectly okay. Yeah that we experience things differently. Can I end on a quote here, Casey? Yeah, let's do it. Roger Ebert, the other critic we were talking about. Good old Ebert. Great name. He said, We are put on this planet only once, and to limit ourselves to the familiar is a crime against our minds. So that goes along with the idea that we should be experiencing... All kinds. All kinds. All kinds of stories. Even if it makes us a little uncomfortable. Yep. Yeah. Well... Let us know what your thoughts are and sort of how stories have impacted you in your life by using the hashtag hello from elsewhere. We're going to start doing that. Follow the bacon and eggs model and and use that hashtag hello from elsewhere. 
That way we can see what you think. Yeah. We have a new a new patron that we Allie. have to Hello Allie. She's awesome and such a good addition to our lives and she's amazing and Thank you, Allie, for being yeah. our newest patron. Thank you for being you. Um, if you want to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash hello from elsewhere. There's some amazing tiers like the $3 tier where you can join Discord and have fun chats about three ninjas like we did, you know, recently. We talked yes. all about three ninjas. Have you seen three ninjas? Valerie, we should watch three ninjas. Where would we find it? It's if it everywhere. Was, if it it's was ubiquitous. Disney, we would find it. <laughs> Disney is ubiquitous. That's fair. Three Ninjas <laughs> shaped me in my relationship with my brothers and mm. my Japanese grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> my grandpa's not Japanese, but he the grandpa is in Three Ninjas. In the movie. Yeah. Yeah. We also have lots of fun t-shirts and other merch available on Teespring. You can go to the description in the show notes if you want that link. And if you love the podcast, we would really appreciate if you would leave a review on iTunes. Why doesn't Spotify allow reviews, Casey? They should. They really should. Maybe if we put that out there, we can influence them. Spotify needs reviews. We've had people send us similes about what it's like to listen to Hello From Elsewhere, and it's our favorite thing. This one comes from Instagram from our listener friend, N.T. Miller 14. And he says, listening to Hello From Elsewhere is like being on a youth group bus on the way back from camp where it is late at night and everyone around you is asleep, but you refuse to go to sleep because you are enjoying the peace. I would believe literally anything Casey says to me, even if I know it was blatantly wrong because his voice commands such attention in such a quiet manner. It's lighthearted, but you come away from every episode going, wow, do I have a found family or am I creeped out by the child snatcher? Yes, you are. <laughs> Valerie's song breaks are a joy to listen to. Happy beeps. Oh, happy beeps, Nate. Happy Thank beeps. you so much. Thanks for that please, review. Please, please don't believe everything I say. <laughs> but do believe that the child snatcher is creepy. Hello from Elsewhere is a proud member of WBNE. Visit WBNE.org for more fabulous podcasts like everyone's favorite Middle Earth podcast. That's what I'm talking about. That's What I'm Talking About follows me, Mary Clay Watt, on my journey through Lord of the Rings for the very first time. Join me each week as I have fans on as guests so we can discuss the books one chapter at a time. From WBNE, That's What I'm Talking About. New episodes every Tuesday wherever you get podcasts. That's What I'm Talking About might be my favorite podcast. Ooh, I love it so much. But I, 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 I love so many and it's just so good. It's so good. Well, as we said, we're in the basement library where good old Ray wrote Fahrenheit 451. And it's if you didn't know, time. he's just down there plucking along the typewriter. But yes, it is closing time. The kind of kind of a kind of a mean librarian. Can I say that? She's kind of mean. She's kicking us out. She's strict. She is not mean. That's true. You're right. Check my biases at the library door. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. Happy beeps. <laughs> Happy beeps. No, you gotta say oh. it quiet. We're in the library. Oh, we're in the library. Happy beeps. <laughs>